0: Well, hey, good morning. morning. It's good to see y'all. We are in week five of our series where we're covering what are the essential doctrines. The essential doctrines of the Christian faith that we, the church of Jesus Christ, have been entrusted with. Like Jesus has placed these in our care. Another thing God has placed in our care is His Word, the Bible. And so I thought before I launch into my sermon, I wanted to give you all a quick Dwell update. Dwell is an app we use as a church where we get to listen to and read along the Scriptures together. And we uh, challenged our folks early on this year, really last year, and the first week of this year to read through the entire Bible this year. Some people are doing that in a year. Others are doing it in 90 days. And a few are doing it in 30 days, and they completed it in the first month of this year. And therefore, in the month of January, our church family listened to and read 168,216 minutes in the Bible. That's amazing. That's over 2,800 hours, just to put it in perspective Uh, Last year, we averaged about 250 hours each month. This first month of the year was 2,800 hours. That's a bit of an increase, (laughs) right, to say the least. And can I just tell you why I, guys, I just find this supremely encouraging as your pastor. Because I truly believe that as we read God's Word with a willing heart, with a submissive heart, that we're coming face to face with the author of this book. We come face to face with Jesus as we read the Bible with a willing heart and our lives will be changed. So when I see that number, that high, unbelievably high number, I see my brothers and sisters in Christ sitting at the feet of Jesus meeting with Him, communing with Him, learning from Him for 168,000 minutes. And I can't think of anything that would be more transforming than that. And so I think that's actually a fitting transition into the doctrine that, that we'll be studying and looking at this morning, which is Christology, the doctrine of Christ, Now, if you grew up in a church tradition that uh, quoted the creeds, and many of y'all are familiar with this creed, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed captures the historic confession of the Christian church. And so it is my prayer today and my hope that as I read these words to you, that they will resonate in your own heart. And that more than things that you memorize and like say almost like reflexively that these will instead become the confession of your own heart. Like my prayer is that the Spirit will use these words to ignite a renewed passion for the person of Christ. Because all of us should have a consuming passion for the doctrine that we're studying today. The Nicene Creed tells us that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Virgin Mary, by the the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Now, church understands this that Christians all over the globe have been confessing these very words for 1700 years. Like these words capture what is the clear and universally accepted teaching of the New Testament regarding the identity of Christ. Which only makes it all the more disturbing that in the State of Theology Survey, National Survey, taken about a year and a half ago, that 44% of evangelicals agreed with this heretical statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but He was not God. Like 44% of evangelicals and 3% were undecided, but 44% of evangelical Christians said that they agree with heresy number one right here. So what are we to make of that? I mean, beyond the fact that 44% of evangelical Christians are not Christian. Understand that. 44% of evangelical Christians are not Christian by their own confession because they do not accept the deity of Christ. I mean, come on. This this is a word for word like the exact error that C.S. Lewis warned us against over 80 years ago like his words originally shared in a series of talks on BBC radio during the Second World War were later published under the title Mere Christianity. And in that work, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a teacher and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He did not intend to. And yet, now 44% of evangelicals are declaring, as their personal creed, word for word, the exact same patronizing nonsense. In addition, 61% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Like 61% of evangelicals say that Jesus was created. And 9% are unsure. So what are we to make of this? I mean, beyond the fact that 61% Of evangelical Christians have the same heretical Christology as Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, what are we to make of the fact that the majority of evangelical Christians are in error, in heresy about the identity of Christ? Like, please understand this is not a secondary issue. This is not an issue that people would say, hey, you know, should we split hairs over? No, we should split hairs over this. This is a big deal. This is the deal of deals because the question of all questions is who is Jesus Christ? Like, on that question, eternity hangs in the balance. Like, according to Jesus, your eternal destiny, will be determined by how you answer that question and by what you do with your answer. In John chapter 8, He tells those who are trying to spar with Him about the law and about who He is, He says, listen, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So what is He talking about? What's fascinating in the English Standard Version, that's this translation, in the NIV, NAS, they all say the same thing. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Except in the original Greek, there's not a pronoun after I am. Like literally Jesus said, unless you believe that ego I may, I am you will die in your sins. And so to avoid any confusion later on, he tells these same people, listen, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He has seen it and he's glad. And they said, you're not even 50. And you've met Father Abraham who died 2,000 years ago? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am taking for Himself the divine name of Yahweh. And they knew exactly what He was doing because the next thing they do is they pick up stones to kill Him. Because He was blaspheming. Because He was claiming to be equal with God. See, evangelicals today may be confused, but Jesus never was. Like He knew who He was. Years ago, I think it was 33 years ago, I got to sit on my first ordination council and grill a young minister who wanted to get ordained. Like the way these these councils work is they usually spend a few hours like raking somebody over the coals about their life and their doctrine and their testimony and everything else. There's all kinds of questions. Nothing is off limits. But I'm sitting there and they lobbed to him what I thought was a pretty softball question. Like where would you turn to in the Bible to prove the deity of Christ? And this young minister to be looked like a deer in headlights. Like I knew him personally and I knew that he knew the answer, but he just completely choked. And I'm feeling for him. I'm like wanting to like mentally just send him some answers Like John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, 1 John 1, Revelation 1, Philippians 2. Like it's right there. Like I look back now, it's 33 years later, and I think, you know, I I still like my answer. I thought it was a good answer. But if I was to be asked that today, I think I would give a fuller and I think a better answer to the question, where would you go in the Bible to prove the deity of Christ? My answer would be, oh man, everywhere. Everywhere. Open your Bible to any page and I will show you Jesus. Glorious Jesus. You see, the Bible is more than just a single book. It's a, Guys, it's a whole library of books. But it's not a hodgepodge just kind of thrown together of different stories and poetry. Like it is an interconnected whole. Like you need to think of it like a, like a British TV show. Like if you watch American TV shows, they'll run for season after season after season. They'll have different showrunners, different writers, different directors, different cast. But British shows usually are written by like a team of a couple people with the same director and the same showrunner. So there's some like conciseness, some character development. Like you need to think of your Bible like a 66 episode TV series with each episode expanding and deepening and building on the previous episodes. With each episode, we get a better, a fuller, a more beautiful picture of the central character of this book. In fact, that's what Jesus said Himself. Like He confronted the Pharisees with this truth in John chapter 5. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I mean, the last of the Old Testament Scriptures at this point was 450 years old. And he's saying, listen Pharisees, you, you just pour over these Hebrew scrolls thinking that in these words you will find eternal life and yet on every page and every scroll they bear witness about me. Like after His resurrection, He meets two dejected disciples on the road to Emmaus. And He shrouds who He is from them and begins to walk with them And hearing their story. And then He turns to them and says in Luke 24, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Best Bible study ever. And just a little while later, he appears to his apostles and has a little Bible study time with them. And he says in verse 44 of Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Well, what was the key? Guys, the key to the Scripture is that it's all about Jesus. Like if you want to understand the Scriptures, start with Jesus. If you want to understand the Old Testament, start with Jesus. If you want to understand your Bible, start with a submission to Jesus. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, guys, start with your Old Testament. Because Genesis 1 is the first chapter in the biography of Jesus Christ. Like a few weeks back, a precious couple in our church was talking to me between services and they told me that they had committed to read through the Bible this year. Uh for the, like the first time as a couple. And so they were going to read the whole Bible together. And at the time we spoke, like four weeks ago, they were just a few chapters in. So they were still in the book of Genesis. And they asked me this question. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Like I, you've said He's everywhere. Where, where's Jesus? Now some people would hear that question and think that it's pretty naive. Right? Hey, you're a few thousand years early. He shows up in Matthew chapter 1, but you're going to have to wait a while. Like It's going to be October or November before you see Jesus. So some people think that's a bad question to ask, but can I just tell you, I thought it was an awesome question. In fact, I think it was just the right question to ask. Like as we read through the Old Testament, we should be asking on every page and in every story, where is Jesus? Like we should follow the storyline of the Bible Christologically with a firm conviction that the Hebrew Scriptures testify of Christ. So let me tell you what I told that couple. And I'll clean it up. I'll make it a little bit better. Give you a more thorough answer. (laughs) add in a little alliteration since it's a sermon and not a conversation between services. First, I'm just wondering, how many shredders do we have in here this morning? Amen. Amen. Well, for you shredders, whether you're doing it in 30 days or 90 days, I think this message will especially resonate with you. First thing that we see is that Jesus appears in the Old Testament by pointing us to something more. I mean, everyone I spoke to who's been a shredder, who's read through the Old Testament in like 30 days, will tell me the same thing. It just stirs in you this longing for more. Like you read the Old Testament and you get in like a very concentrated way the same feeling you get when you look at the world as a whole. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Like, I believe it was the intention of the Holy Spirit that in every reading of the Old Testament, every story, every promise of something more and something better and something permanent, that it was meant to stir in us a longing for Jesus. I mean, after all, the Bible is this love story that begins with a divorce. It's a story of longing. Like every failure on the part of God's covenant people. Every hero that steps up that God uses to turn Israel back to Him. Every prophet, every priest, every king leave two words echoing down into our hearts. Not this. Not this. Like Eve is promised a child who will crush the head of the serpent. And Cain is born. And then Abel. And then Seth. But not this. God floods the earth and He rescues one righteous family and He starts fresh. But not this. God promises Abraham that through him And his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Isaac is born in his old age, this child of promise. And yet, is he the one? Oh no, not this. The people of Israel are enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. And God raises up a prophet, this prince of Egypt, Moses. Is he the one? No, not this. Israel is delivered from bondage and given a new way to live under God's law. Israel is given a sacrificial system so they could stay in fellowship with God. They build a tabernacle so that God may dwell among His people. They're brought into the promised land. But not this. And hero after hero after hero Leave you longing for something pure and something permanent. Like for all of you shredders, I know you felt this as you read through the entire Bible. Like I was struck with the fact that even the good guys are bad, right? Like you read the Old Testament and the good guys are terrible. Like you just think, what about? Like I would not hang out with these guys. I wouldn't trust Jacob with anything. Right? Like the good guys are bad. They are only good in comparison with everybody else who are just terrible. Like we all have a sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for that permanence, that perfection, that purity. Like we are wired for more because God has set eternity in our hearts according to Ecclesiastes. We long for the true and the better. Like Jesus appears in the Old Testament pointing us to something more. But Jesus also appears in repeated patterns throughout the Old Testament. In types and in images and in pictures that communicate that He is coming. Like you see Jesus in the sacrifice of an innocent animal that covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve. You see Jesus in the sword, that flaming sword held by an angel that blocks entrance back into the Garden of Eden and into the presence of God. Like it communicates that because you sin, you cannot come in. But you have this thought that maybe Instead of that sword falling on me and killing me, maybe that sword will fall on someone else and then it will provide access back into God's presence. You see Christ in Abel's blood that cries out from the ground. You see Him in the flood of God's judgment and in the ark of His deliverance. You see Him in the symbol of the promise That bow hanging in the heavens, representing not just the, you know, like how light hits, you know, water, but instead representing the war bow of God hanging in the heavens, no longer pointing at the earth to judge them, but instead pointing at heaven because the next time sin is judged on this scale, that God Himself will be the one who bears the punishment. Like Jesus is going to be covered with the floodwaters of God's wrath to bear the sin of His people. Well, you see Jesus and the Lamb sacrificed in the place of Isaac. You see Christ in the Passover meal and in the blood splattered on the door so that the wrath of God would pass by. You see Him in the passing through the waters of the Red Sea as the nation of Israel, according to Paul, were baptized into Christ. You see Him in the bronze serpent lifted up for Israel's healing that if you look at it with faith in God, you will be healed. You see Jesus in every judge, bringing deliverance. You see Him in every righteous king restoring faithful worship to God's people. You see the outline of His character in the perfect law of God. You see Him in the songs sung by the people of Israel. You see Him in the priesthood and in the sacrificial system. You see Him in the Holy of Holies because He alone is our mercy seat. And you see Jesus in the sacrifice of every lamb without spot or blemish or any defect. Like all the images are just a pattern. They're just an outline of the true and the better. They are but shadows. But Christ is the substance. So Jesus appears in the pointing Like to something more, He appears in the repeated patterns in the Old Testament. And Jesus appears, of course, in the promises made specifically about Him. Like Jesus is the seed of the woman who comes to crush the serpent's head. He's the promised child who will be a blessing to the nations. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. The ruler's staff that brings in the obedience of all peoples. Like He is the great prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He is the Son of David whose reign stretches into eternity. Like Jesus from Isaiah 7 is the one born of a virgin whose name literally means God with us. How did you miss that one? From Micah 5, He's the one who comes from Bethlehem whose origins are found in eternity. From Isaiah 9, He's the one coming to Galilee bringing a great light. From Isaiah 8, He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become for us the cornerstone. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. From Isaiah 35, He is the root of Jesse that serves as a banner to the nations as they come into His kingdom. From Zechariah 9, He is the righteous King who rides in humbly on a donkey. From Zechariah 11, He's the one betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. From Psalm 22, He's the innocent sufferer stretched out and laid bare, thirsting for water as His tormentors cast lots for His clothing. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will sprinkle the nations with His blood to make them pure. From Jeremiah 31, He is the bringer of a new and better covenant. And from Malachi 3, He's the messenger of that covenant who suddenly comes to His temple. And on and on and on and on. There's just not enough time to tell you all of them. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so guys, as you read your Old Testament, Don't fret over the fact that you have to wait till October to see Jesus because He's here. Like He appears pointing us to something more. He appears in the repeated patterns, these types and images. He appears in the countless specific promises made hundreds of years in advance. But then finally, Jesus appears in person. Now, certainly this happens in the New Testament. That's what we mean by incarnation. The enfleshing of God. That God becomes man. He doesn't cease in any way to be God. Yet, He takes on full humanity. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that the Word that's already been described as the Creator and as God Himself and as the light and life of all mankind, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The introduction to the book of Hebrews says of Jesus that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians chapter 2 says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. I mean, the incarnation, guys, is the miracle of all miracles. Like if you will accept the fact that God became man, then all the rest of the story falls together, and you begin to really get it. Like in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, at the end of his chapter on the deity of Christ, he comes to this conclusion that the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, that will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most most profound mystery in all the universe. But, guys, something I want you to understand is that even though the incarnation of the Son of God happened in the womb of Mary, Matthew chapter 1 is not the first time you see Jesus in your Bible. John chapter 1, verse 18, says that no one has ever seen God. Jesus himself says in John 6, no one has seen my Father, and yet. There are countless times in the Old Testament where people have an encounter with God. They see God. They fall at his feet, they worship him. They're afraid that they will die. So how is that possible that no one has seen the Father, and yet throughout the Old Testament you have God showing up? Well, John chapter 1 verse 18 shows us how. He says, "No one has ever seen God." But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And so what I want you to understand is that Christ was always the image of the invisible God. Christ was always the one sent by the Father to represent the Godhead, to image God for His people. Like the Father sent the Son in the Old Testament to prepare us for His incarnation. So any embodied appearance of God in the Old Testament is Christ. Any manifestation we have of God in the Old Testament is the Son of God. The Son is the One who always reveals the Father. I mean, Jesus Himself said in John 14, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Christ is and has always been the One who makes the invisible visible. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. In the Old Testament, these appearances of Christ are called theophanies or Christophanies. Like a theophany is a visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament that in some way makes Him tangible to our senses. Like God is always mediated by His Son, so Christ is not merely pointed to in the Old Testament, not merely promised in the Old Testament, but He shows up. Like Jesus shows up in person in your Hebrew Bible. I mean, guys, that means that it was Jesus. The Jesus we sing about. The Jesus you love. It was Jesus who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Which makes the promise of revelation even sweeter that we will walk with Him dressed in white. But even in chapter 3 of Genesis, we've already seen Jesus. Because Colossians and John and Hebrew makes it clear that the One who speaks creation into existence is the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, Jesus, who says to an empty cosmos, to nothing, let there be light. And there was light. It was Jesus who appeared to Abraham and made Him a promise that a child that comes from His lineage would bless the nations. I mean, guys, hear this. Jesus is both the promised One and the One who makes the promise. Like He stands physically before Abraham, leading him to the side of the hill, looking at the stars. And the One making the promise is promising Himself to come back in human flesh. Like Christ is the angel of the Lord. Literally, the messenger of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's the one who had dinner with Abraham in Genesis 18 and promised him that he would have a child that very year. And Sarah laughed. Jesus is the God who sees who rescued Hagar. Jesus is the one who provided a lamb for Abraham to sacrifice on Mount Moriah in place of His one and only Son, knowing that His own life would not be spared. Christ is the one who wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. Jesus is the one who said that I am as He appeared to Moses and spoke out of a bush that burned and yet was not consumed. Jude 5 tells us that Jesus is the One who delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. He was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that He is the rock in the wilderness. Jesus was the commander of the, of the armies of Yahweh that Joshua fell before His feet and worshiped Him. And Jesus is the Word of God that called to Samuel and then stood before Him in physical form and made Him a prophet. Jesus is the word of God that called Jeremiah and then reached out and touched his lips and placed his word in his mouth. Jesus is the one who answered Job out of a tempest. And according to John 12, Jesus is Yahweh seated on a throne in Isaiah chapter 6 as Seraphim fly around him and never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then finally, Jesus is the one who walked in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like he is both the promised one and the one who makes all the promises. How can you miss these clues? I said this of God in my Doctrine of God sermon, but I can apply it to Jesus perfectly. It is always safe to assume that your view of Jesus is woefully small. Is way too small. I mean, can you ever think too highly of Jesus? Can you ever honor Jesus too much? So who is Jesus? And what will you do with your answer? Soren Kierkegaard has written that it is blasphemous to have a heedless reverence for Christ. A heedless reverence that doesn't bow and surrender, that only acknowledges who He is and sings a song and quotes a creed. So what will your answer be? And what will you do with your answer? There's really only two options. You can reject Him completely or you can fall at His feet and call Him Lord and God. But don't come with any patronizing nonsense about Him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to you. He did not intend to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up not just in Matthew chapter 1, but in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, in Genesis 3. Throughout the law and the prophets and the Psalms, through all the wisdom literature, We see You on every page and in every page You create a longing for more that only the fully incarnate Son of God can satisfy. And Lord Jesus, prepare our hearts now to commune with You in a unique way at this table as we take Your body and Your blood. And church, I would ask that You stand with me and that we would read these words together as we prepare our hearts for communion. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man.